I'm Jim Frawley, and this is Bellwether. Welcome to this episode of Bellwether Hub. Thank you for joining us. I'm very excited about today's uh, guest and topic. Um, I am jumping right into the gauntlet of a very, very topical, uh, and this is going to be topical for a long time. It's been topical for a long time, the idea of women in the workplace. Uh, and, And my guest today, Eileen Scully, we had a conversation recently about all of the good work that she does. And I got very excited about the prospect of talking about it. I told my wife, that we are going to do an episode on women in the workplace. And she looked at me like I had three heads. Um, And she said, you are really going into the lion's den. Good luck with that. And so hopefully I don't say anything grossly inappropriate because I'm trying to learn. This is a big, uh, very big topic. I remember talking about it a lot in corporate. When I was in corporate, I work a lot with clients on it now. Diversity and inclusion is uh, a very hot topic. Um, and I, I don't even want to call it a hot topic because it's something that just needs to be addressed and it's been you know almost ignored for a long time and, and that's why I thought Eileen was going to be the uh, the, the perfect guest to uh, to talk about this. Eileen has a book coming out uh, called In the Company of Men: How Women Can Succeed in a World Built Without Them. And the reason I really like that title and the reason I like this topic is that it's not necessarily a conversation about you know just getting women equal in the workplace. It's a conversation about the fact that the workplace has been built not by them. And as a man working in the workplace, I never really thought about it in that particular way. When you think about equality, you say, yeah, right, you know, we can bring women into the workplace and everything else. Um, It was never really thinking about the fact that, oh, wow, how many things do I just take for granted as a man? And how, how do I operate on a regular basis that just works for me? But how many women have just dealt with this on a regular basis? That, that it didn't necessarily work with them. So uh, I'm not going to give too much of an intro on it because surely I'm not the expert on on this uh, and Eileen is. So I would like to welcome Eileen. Eileen, thank you for joining us on Bellwether Hub. Thank you, Jim. This is great. Thanks for having me. So, so tell us about you. Tell us about uh, the rising tides. Tell us about in the company of men. Tell us everything that, that you do. Yeah, sure. How much time do we have? We have all day long. We can go as long as you want. A little about me. I started the Rising Tides in 2015, feeling like I was at a point in my life where, first of all, I was tired of making other people wealthy over, you know, my blood, sweat, and tears. And I was feeling that there was, it was the right time to start elevating the awareness around what women need from a workplace and the way that workplaces can adjust and adapt to meet our needs as equally as to your point earlier, they always have for men. And I felt like I was the right person to do that because I had lived through 20 something years in the technology industry. While that was very, very good for me and very good to me, there was a point at which I saw women's careers stalling consistently across a number of different firms. These were very intelligent, very capable, very educated, very lettered women who just stalled out inexplicably other than their gender. And to the point that you made, the requirements of their home lives were not being balanced by either their partners or if they didn't have a partner, 
by a workplace that was willing to accommodate that they had lives outside of work. So lives outside of work. So your focus then, is it on balance? Is it on, you know, there's this conversation on women's empowerment, which we'll talk about a little bit as well. Where is the the focus really where we should be spending our time on on this particular topic? So it's a multi-layered answer to that. But when you think about women in the workplace, the overriding issue that most women have is that a workplace doesn't allow them to have full lives outside of the workplace if they give their full lives to the workplace. We run into consistently women who are CEOs, women who are running for office, women who are achieving high levels of success being asked, how do you do it all? And we rarely, if never, ask that same question of a man. We don't concern ourselves with how many children are at home because we assume that's being cared for by someone else. We don't assume that for women. So we need for workplaces to open up and expand and accommodate that everyone has a full life outside of the workplace. A few years ago, I wrote a piece when Marissa Meyer, who was running Yahoo at the time, was expecting twins and she announced that she was only going to take two weeks out of the office before coming back to work. At the same time, Mark Zuckerberg, who was and is still running Facebook, announced that he was having their first child and he was going to be gone for two months. And the juxtaposition of both of those decisions was exactly the opposite of what most people see from executives in the workplace. My point of view at that time was, can we not get to a place where we respect both of those choices equally? So people were completely lauding Zuckerberg and saying how wonderful he's giving all this time and attention to his new family, how great that a man is willing to do this. A man stepping up, how nice. Uh, right. right? Yeah. And then Marissa Meyer was being chastised for leaving her infant twins when, by the way, they built a nursery off her executive office. But that's her choice. And she knows what's right for her family and her demands of her job. So we need to look at both of those respect them and support them because you hire people because they're smart. You trust them to make the decisions for your business, but we don't trust them to make the decisions for their families in the same way. So is that where this conversation or the discussion on women in the workplace needs to start is our basic assumptions that we just operate in this particular way? Because I feel like a lot of the, I remember the Marissa Meyer thing and a lot of the conversation was talking about how women were attacking Marissa Meyer. Uh, and everyone, you know, love Mark Zuckerberg for doing it. Yes, blah, 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 blah. Um, so I feel like there are a lot of assumptions, both on the men's side and the women's side, on the way that they're operating. Is that where the discussion needs to start on what, when you attack someone or you question someone, what assumptions are driving that? Do you need to question that yourself? Absolutely. And making gendered assumptions is where it's so deeply flawed. So I had a job once where I was working with people much younger than me who were starting their families, going on honeymoons, doing all that stuff. My daughter was grown, but I had gotten very involved in a number of nonprofits to which I was very committed and gave a lot of my free time. So when we would go around and introduce each other to, you know, the new team members and people would say, oh, I have a three and a five-year-old and blah, blah. I would say, well, you know what, like you guys spend your weekends on the soccer fields or doing different things with your kids, I spend my weekends giving my time to these nonprofits. I chaired a board for a number of years. 
So whatever that is that gives your employees the sense of wholeness and fullness outside of the office, whether it's young children, whether it's aging parents that they're they're dealing with and caring for, whatever it is, there's got to be an off switch and an, an allowance for people to have that full life and come back and contribute fully rested, rejuvenated and renewed from having those things and not feeling like I can never be off the clock. I can never not be working. And that's what we've created. And that sounds almost, it, it's a wellness initiative. Definitely. In a way, um, on the way that, you know, it, it's not gender specific. It could be anybody really about taking the time that you need and work supports your life and not vice versa. Uh, what have you, you know, what's changed over the last few years, because I feel like there has been a massive shift when I think of the 80s and the 90s and women in the workplace. Granted, I was younger. Uh, and probably, We all were. We all were. <laughs> yes, it was a long time ago. But I don't, I, I don't remember the conversation being as driven as it was today. What has changed and what's been most impactful in terms of making this shift? Sure. So a lot of the changes have been seeing women achieving different levels of success in corporate seeing women achieving different levels of success in the legislative public sphere, right, in, in positions of political strength. And also, I think there's an awareness on a very basic level, the generation, I'll say younger than me, is realizing that they need to have equal partnerships at home, and women are not racing to get married the way they did. They are not having their children as young as they did. All those things are changing. And so women are achieving higher levels of academic success, which is leading to better qualified positions out of school, out of the gate. So there's a different level of equality that starts at home and also goes into the workplace. I mean, there's a whole shift and dynamic that's changing for them right now. I think of myself when I started working, my boss would not allow women to wear pants in the workplace. And that was in the 90s. It was yeah. the early 90s, but it was the 90s. And Which is amazing when you think about it. It wasn't bananas. that long ago. Right. It really wasn't that long ago when right. all of these you know, things were happening. And it, it just shows how quickly a, an entire society can change. What do you think was the biggest impact outside of the people? I, mm -hmm. When I think of it, most of the changes I usually attribute to technology. Right. You hear other people's stories and communication has grown and whether it's through something like Facebook or whether it's through Instagram and um, you hear about strong women telling their stories. Is there anything else that you think needs to change now uh, that people can tell those stories using a medium like technology, using things like communication that will help drive this conversation further? You know, I think it's understanding, right, that there's validity in women's stories. And that has been a huge change, even just since I started this business. So we are now being heard at very different volumes than we ever were, right? If a woman right now has a complaint, I hate to focus only on sexual harassment, but even just workplace discrimination, it's validated more quickly than it ever was. It's not automatically validated, nor should it always be but we're heard and listened to and not dismissed and quieted the way we were years ago. And that's a sea change for women. That's a sea change. Now I'm gonna ask another question is, it's happened so quickly. Mm -hmm. How does it not become commoditized? How does it not become generalized? Because we operate in, in these generalizations all the time. You know, all feminists are angry and all men are guilty right. of whatever and all that other stuff. 
when a change like that happens so quickly, not everybody in society generally is on board, right? And they, it takes them a little bit you know, longer to just kind of accept it and, and you know, ask the right questions and question themselves, really. Um, what happens with something along those lines in terms of you know, the commoditization, the generalization? How do you make sure that people are validated, continue to have that, that, valid, that valid audience to say that, yes, you, your opinion matters or, or this situation is important? So in a corporate environment, that absolutely has to come from the leadership. So the leadership needs to say, this is maybe how we used to do things and we were incorrect and here's how we're doing them now. And they need to have people in place that are open, that are like-minded, that are willing to change that culture within that organization. And that's what I help a lot of organizations do is sort of identify where are the pockets of problem culture and how do you break that up and shift that? And, and what I tell my clients a lot is, let's try to get to a place, let's set what that baseline is. Let's understand exactly what's happening right now in your organization. Let's come clean on that in a way that doesn't expose you legally, obviously, but let's talk about some of the things that you're willing to address and change and attach resources to. And then let's really look at making some of those measurable shifts in your culture where I like to say racism isn't funny anymore. Homophobia is not funny anymore, particularly in corporate cultures. Sexism needs to be on that list. It needs to be not funny to make the jokes and the comments and the decisions that are sexist based. And the less people are laughing and the less people are getting on board with that and the more people are being vocal against those behaviors, the more quickly they'll change. Which is interesting because as I was preparing for this, I thought about you know other situations that maybe came out in the 80s or the 90s that were hilarious back then, not funny today. I think of Eddie Murphy's Raw would never fly Porkies, today. Right? Right. Porky would right. never fly today. Uh, hot topic now in the news are people having to apologize for stuff they did in the past. What's your take on that in terms of, you know what, it was a different time. People operated in a different way. Not that that's an excuse, but how do you make a transition? Because that's a tough pill to swallow for someone to say, yes, I did this in the past and no, I don't want to do now. How do you how do you get believed? How do you actually make that transition? Right. So when Me Too first hit, when the Weinstein, th- and I just passed him, by the way, on 42nd Street. Oh, nice. Crazy. <laughs> When that first hit, a lot of the very good men that I speak with frequently were turning to me and saying, how do I even know if I'm guilty of some of this stuff? Because I don't remember. I don't, I didn't think about it this way. And it never occurred to me that it might not be okay. The other side of that is as a woman, and I'll be honest, I grew up with all boys on my street. I spoke boy before I knew how to interact with girls. And that was a struggle for me as Mm -hmm. a a girl. I got all the jokes. I was right there with them. I probably would have been more comfortable in a fraternity than a sorority, right? My point being, the men didn't see the harm, partly because we were trained to laugh along with it, even if we were the butt of the joke. So there's a shared accountability there. I won't call it responsibility because we were just doing what we had to do to save face and keep our jobs and keep going. 
But when those men came to me, I said, the best way to do it is to really have some of those conversations. If you're still in touch with those people, if you know, you can say, we were in college together. And I'm not talking about a Brett Kavanaugh, Yale situation. I'm talking about a more (laughs) innocuous, did I ever say anything? Help me understand what my behavior was that may have been offensive to you because I want to learn and I want to get better. And most of all, I want to apologize. So right now we're in a place where we are really deconstructing every move that Joe Biden has ever made. Some of it is harmless. Some of it made people uncomfortable. Some of it is Joe being Joe. But the lens of times have changed and it was okay then and it's not okay now is inaccurate because we hear the same thing about blackface, right? Well, it was okay to do blackface in the 80s. It wasn't okay for everybody. It was okay for your white male fraternity to put on blackface. But if you asked any of your friends who were not white, if they were okay with it, they probably wouldn't have told you, but they would have thought, of course not. So it's a a question of who are you checking in with that told you it was okay 20 years ago? Were they all people that looked and acted like you? Now, is this something that is... uh... I guess it sounds like it's got to be up to each individual to do their own work. Always. You know, when I think of this, uh, a lot of the conversations, and I talk to people a lot about, you know, mental health or anything, you know, people say, oh, someone should really do something about that. But it's never, you know, what can I do about mm-hmm. that? How does someone start that process to say, you know what, I was kind of a jerk in college. I should not have done that in college. I barely remember college. You know, what did, what did I even do 20 years ago? How do you even begin that that process? And should you even try to open up these old wounds? How do you start that for you versus just saying, yeah, someone should probably do that? I would say start from today, right? So if you think that there's something in your recent history that should be called into question, take the responsibility, have a one-to-one conversation and say, am I remembering this the way you remembered this? And can we talk about this because I really need to get better? And I'm, if I hurt you, I'm sorry. If I insulted you, I'm sorry. But help me get better. A lot of this conversation puts the responsibility back on the person that was harmed mm-hmm. to fix it, which I also take issue with. But yep. we need to always be able to have those conversations. Again, one-to-one is best. Now, If you're somebody that really burned me, I'm probably not going to want to help you get better. That's all on you. But the fact that you're trying should be given a few points on the board. A few points. Just a few. Just a couple. That's a good start. Right. Um, But you are in foul trouble. You are. Yeah. It depends on where it lands. Right. Exactly. (laughs) We'll see how that goes. Right. Um, Now, okay. So that's, that's on me too. Yeah. But we're also talking about equality in the workplace, not yeah. necessarily just in Me Too, but the gender disparity in pay and gender disparity in leadership roles mm-hmm. and getting more women on boards and in, in the C-suite and doing all of that. And that's important, of course. How do you get men on board? You know, when I think about that, the elephant in the room for a guy is saying, I'm, I'm not getting promoted. Right. Right. Uh, I remember sitting when I worked at a bank and the head of strategy, she said, our priority is 100 percent promoting women. Mm-hmm. And every guy in the room just pulled out the phone and started updating the resume. Like, right. I don't have a future. 
which I told my wife about that. And she said, well, look, they're not making every job just for women, which is important to, re to remember. How do you get men on board to not feel like, you know, the victim? You mean feel like the women have felt like the all women these have years? Felt all the years. Yeah. That's right. How right. do you get men to not say, look, this isn't, you know, right. it's not my fault. I wasn't that way back in the 80s. How do you get men on board to say, you know what, you're right. We do need more women in leadership and, and say, you right. know what, I'm going to step aside here and say this person should be here. So it goes back to how are we defining equality as a society and as an individual organization and an on the ground level, right? So when you talk about, yeah, we are exclusively promoting women, I understand that a lot of companies are looking at that right now and they're looking at what's their pipeline for talent for women. It is not to the exclusion of men. It's trying to establish an equitable workplace for everyone. Salesforce.com, the mm -hmm. big software company who Mark Benioff is a, a phenomenal leader. He's not perfect, but he's done some remarkable things. They have a policy called the Women's Surge. I don't know if you're familiar with this. They require that every meeting of consequence where decisions or budgets, those kinds of meetings where big decisions are being made, needs to have 30% women in the room. It's a wonderful baseline because it says, let's not forget to invite all the representatives of all of the people that this decision is going to touch. I challenge my clients to not only adopt that, but to also increase the diversity of that room. So it's not just women and men. Let's look at who is it that this decision is going to affect, be it our clients, our shareholders, our employees, and let's represent those people in this room making this decision, right? Up until very recently, in March of 2019, Amazon brought on two women of color to their board. Prior to that, for at least the year, I believe 18 months uh, before that, their board of directors and their executive leadership team was all white. Mm -hmm. So not all men, but all white. That's problematic, right? So they recognize it. They responded to some shareholder pressure. And now they have two highly qualified women of color on their board. Which is interesting, too, because responding to shareholder pressure is because the research shows that it's actually good for business. The, and not just because you just put token people on a board. It's the perspective and the way they think about things that that is of the ultimate value. Exactly. So it's not even just the diversity. It's that inclusion aspect of saying, yes, I want you on the board, but you have to be very vocal because we want you to, we want you to be heard. We want yeah. what you're bringing to the table. Um, this, and you think about, sorry to interrupt, yeah. think about who are Amazon's customers? They're not all white. No. So the decisions that have been made at Amazon reflect the decisions and the context from which that all white leadership team came from. And not now that hopefully will change. Now, this has been mostly a U.S.-focused conversation. Sure. But you speak all over the world. And when I think about women's equality in the workplace, a place, you know, the challenges in the U.S., are night and day from, say, Northern Africa, right? Where yeah. I think you've done some work. Yeah, yeah. So talk a little bit about what you've learned from audiences around the world, because I feel like there's a scale. And while the U.S. is further along on that scale, there's still work to be done both here and abroad. Absolutely. So the women that I've met, 
blow me away because of the conditions that you're talking about, because they have limited access to travel sometimes. They do not have huge budgets for travel or education, but the determination is so strong. So somehow this Irish, you know, middle-aged woman from the Northeast U.S. has become one of the voices for empowerment in that part of the world. What I get from these women is not that they want to follow the path that I followed because it's either not available to them or their path is much more rewarding for them the way they're doing it. But it's, it's aspirational. It's they see this woman getting up on stage talking about the things that I talk about and the way that I talk about it in terms of let's use the dollars that we're working very hard to earn to change some of these companies. Back to what I said before, as a shareholder, as a customer, as an employee or a potential employee, you have power to change the decisions of some of those companies. And for these women, they hear that and they go, yeah, I do, right? I want to own part of this company. I want to change the decisions that they're making. I want to participate at that level. And I think I show them a way that that is possible for them. What are, when you think about that scale and you see for them, it sounds like, you know, they're not even aware of what's possible where they're just finally hearing it. What, what's first for them when they need to think about whatever it is, you know, from, from a fundamental basis of equality, it goes way beyond the workplace. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's just from societal and, and, you know, you're not even allowed to leave the house or the government, you know, you're not allowed to drive. How does that, how is that different for someone there when you're talking about equality versus someone in the U.S.? So the point you made earlier is so valid because technology and the accessibility of technology has changed the world for these women. So I tend to, for whatever reason, I've been working with women in software development, engineering, those more technical fields. So they are, their skills are assessed on a somewhat equal level to the men in their countries when they're hired for jobs. They're promoted, they are seen as valuable. What needs to happen is a lot of these women need to get more comfortable in their own voice, right? And so I think that's another part of what I help them do is let's identify what it is that you believe strongly in, what you want your contribution to the world to be, and let's find a way for you to express that in a way that you're comfortable now that will allow you to grow over the next five or 10 years, both in your career and personally. What misconceptions do people have? When I think of women in North Africa Mm -hmm. or in Saudi Arabia or anything else, that conversation is not something I think they would ever be able to have, but yet it's happening all the time. Absolutely. So what misconceptions do people really have about women over there versus here uh, that that might surprise them. Sure. I, I think the biggest one is that these women are subjugated. And the perception by the choice of how they dress is wildly misrepresented. So there are women who wear all different variations of a headdress, a head covering, a robe. It's an expression for them of their values and their culture. So just the same as today, I'm wearing an Irish punt, right? Because I'm going to an event with the Irish community tonight. That's an expression for me of my pride in my heritage. 
for these women, it's an expression of modesty and values for them. And they get judged, particularly by people outside of the Arab countries, as being less than or being controlled. And that is so not the case. The last, I was in Morocco last month speaking with um, an Arab Women in Computing conference. There were four women from Sudan who arrived. Their visas had gotten stuck in the bureaucracy and had not gotten approved in time. The night before their flight, they went and sat outside the embassy and demanded that their visas get signed and approved. The ambassador showed up in his pajamas to sign them, mostly probably to make these women go away, but they got there. They arrived in Morocco. And I heard this story and I said, I need to meet these women. <laughs> like they were, And they were beautiful and brilliant and thrilled and stimulated and incredibly inspiring. That's what you don't even think about something as basic as that. It's just the amount that we just take for granted. I was complaining that my in-flight entertainment didn't work on my flight. Right, so right, it set right. me right back. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the kind of that's the kind of experience for these women is it's not just that they're women, it's the the constraints of their own countries, right? So we are talking very frequently about countries that are not as technologically advanced as maybe we are or some of the Western European countries are. That holds them back. Transportation is a major problem for a lot of people. Even just getting from one city to another, whether or not you're crossing a border can be problematic. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Which could be a whole other, as I'm thinking, I'm like, this would be another amazing podcast. I've learned so much (laughs) from these women and they are all brilliant, beautiful, like ambitious, hilarious women. That's great. Yeah, they're great. They're great. Now, you also have stories. Tell me a little bit about your book, because I really want to get into the book, because your book is full of stories. So tell me a little bit about some of your stories. Yeah. So the book is, again, it's called In the Company of Men. And what I really wanted to share are stories of women who have achieved remarkable success in very strongly male-dominated spaces. But instead of ending the story there, each of these women is changing that space to widen that path for other people, not just women, for other people to follow. So one of the women that I'm featuring is an NFL sideline reporter. She is brilliant. She knows sports better than any man that I know. She talks games, she does great interviews, like at a moment's notice. And she realized that as she was getting older, she was losing her assignments. They were going to younger reporters. These younger reporters were not just younger, they weren't prepared. And so what Laura saw was, this is gonna take down all of us. If these women aren't equipped for this job, we're all gonna stop getting these assignments and all the progress that we thought we'd made is gonna be reversed. So instead of quitting sports, instead of retiring, Laura decided she was gonna keep working and in the off season, she does a boot camp where she brings dozens of young aspiring sports reporters who are women into the training camps with a professional football team every year and immerses them for two weeks. So she teaches them how to talk to these guys. She teaches them how to build the rapport and the trust that's necessary with each of these athletes because you miss the key pass 
and you've got the sideline reporter asking you questions, you got to trust that person that yep. they're not going to embarrass you or make you look bad. So she really helps them improve their credibility, their on-screen presence, their knowledge of the game, and their rapport with these players. And it's brilliant. Which I love to hear because I feel like it's going back to the hot topic, commoditized aspect of, you know, strong women, hashtag strong women. Right. Uh, and it's just a woman doing something that could be impressive, maybe not as a person, whatever. And then it just ends. Right. But a story like that where you say, okay, you know what? I'm going to not just end this story here. Let's implement something that's going to fundamentally change the landscape of the way that it should be operating, which is fascinating to me. Right, right. And all the other stories in the book. So I have about nine or ten chapters. I should know exactly how many chapters, but I don't. (laughs) But each of them really highlights a woman who's done, like I said, some remarkable things, but... We go into the history of the space and why it's been such a challenge for women to make any inroads up until this point. And then we tell the story of what she's doing to change that for everyone that's going to come after. And a lot of the people that are going to benefit from the work of these women that I'm featuring are people that the featured woman will never meet. Yeah. Right. So it's sitting under the trees of seeds we didn't plant. Right. And those are the stories I think the more we and not just women but the more we as women can take our own success and bring other people up through it right and shorten that runway for everyone else to succeed that's going to accelerate getting us to a place of equality and it fundamentally and that's what i think i like about your book is and what makes it different than other books is that it's not just a story right right everybody could take something like this and then implement it into you know or maybe think differently about the way that they're operating is there anybody today that gets it, in your opinion, that just says, yep, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is how it should be. Anybody from your experiences where you just want to give credit to saying this is, you know, these people are making the proper inroads today. You know, there are more and more that I read about every week, which is really encouraging for me. But I'll go back to my current favorite example is Mark Benioff from Salesforce, because here's a guy who made, forgive me, a shit ton of money, right? And could have just kept it on the profit model and not worried about doing the right thing. They very early on developed a uh, foundation as part of the corporation where they give 1% of their profits, 1% of their people out to nonprofits completely free. Benioff, when Mike Pence was governor of Indiana and started threatening the bathroom bill, right, that you were going to have to go into the bathroom of which your birth assignment was. Mark Benioff stopped and said, we have an office in Indiana and we do a lot of conferences in Indiana. And if you put this law through, we won't. We will close that office. We will go somewhere else. And that law never passed. And I like to think that the power of what Benioff did there had some strong influence because when you rip corporations out of states, as we know in Connecticut, you lose a lot of tax revenue. So he's an excellent example. The women's surge that I referred to earlier, he threw, I think it's now up to $18 million towards pay equity. And his initiative is excellent because instead of doing what a lot of companies do, which is let's address it, let's check the box and let's move on. That's a constant now evaluation by them. Every time they acquire a company, 
they put it through that pay equity lens and they bring everybody up to par. It's it's a really great model for a lot of other companies to follow. Now, I love that. And when you think about an initiative, like what you're, I consider this a movement, an initiative, whatever you want to call it. What's the end game for something like that? Is it just, you know, how do you know that you've been successful? How do you know that we have made, and I know the answer is probably like, it'll constantly change and it'll constantly go. But, you know, what do you work towards more like, you know, Salesforce saying, you know, we're going to stand up for what's right. Mm -hmm. What, what's the end game? I think the end game is when we obviously sexual harassment is no longer tolerated or participated in, right? When that's not a power play against women anymore, when we don't have to worry that we're not being paid the same rates that men are being paid for the same work. We just, as I was on the train this morning, I think I saw that the Violence Against Women Act has passed. So that's a huge legislative victory for women. And we'll see, you know, what happens next with that. When we're no longer assessing someone in a gender-based way. So if you think to yourself, well, is that person the token hire? You know, are you the diversity hire? When we stop thinking that way and you can really look at someone in your workplace as getting there because they earned it the same way that you did instead of this one's taking my place or, you know, I, I have a friend who was, um, in administration at Yale University. And when people would say, you know, well, that kid took the place of some other kid, his response, and I thought it was brilliant, was he's not taking the place. It's the, what we're now finding, you know, the C student with the wealthy parent right. is the one that's taking the place of the qualified kid who didn't get in. So now, in terms of end game, when you think about a woman fighting for all this stuff, and she fought for years for all this stuff. That becomes a part of who she is. And when you think about it in the workplace, it's also a part of who the guys are because that's it. Is this going to take generations of people through the workplace oh, in order that. to get there? Or because I feel like someone who had a fight in the 80s and 90s, you can't just say, oh, well, you got it. So you're good to go. It's more like, no, it's still a part of who I am because I had a fight to be here. Um, whether it's people of color, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, different genders or different, you know, sexual preference, sure. whatever it is, they had to fight to get to where they are today. That is a core component of who they are. So is, are you just making inroads now for the future? Which I think the answer is yes. Uh, are you okay with that? Or is there more progress that needs to be made that hopefully you could say, yeah, you know, I, th I think we, we, we are getting very close to where we need to be. I think there's been an acceleration. I'll say that in the last two years, I have definitely, I mean, I felt it personally with all the inbound uh, questions and opportunities that are coming to me. I also think it's, we're at a point where so much of this stuff is so easily exposed now, right? So we had the Google backlash with the walkout after the payouts were released. We have people organizing on social media platforms in ways that we never did before, right? So there's an opportunity to be more collectively vocal. And I think that that's scary to a lot of people that are or thought they were in charge, right? So they have a different megaphone that they have to answer to. So to answer your question, 
yes, absolutely, I'm doing this for my daughter. And, you know, if she chooses to have children for them and for basically all these women in North Africa that I'm working with, they're much younger than me. If even in the next 10 years, they can just see the world as being more welcoming and open to them. If we can get our workplaces to allow us to be as authentically ourselves as we are at home and with our friends and with the people we choose to be around, that's a huge victory, right? If I don't have to worry about the fact that I'm, you know, a certain religion at my workplace, that I'm a certain skin color, that I'm a certain sexual orientation. If I don't have to hide those things or worry about those things, that's perfection for me. We're nowhere near that, but that is a big goal. And I love what you said about the people who thought they were in charge. And that's, I, I've never heard it put that way, but I, it's, yeah. The power is uh, shifting right now. The power is shifting, and yeah. it, it's so relevant even just beyond gender, right? The people who thought they were in charge. The world is changing, whether you want it to or not, so you better get on board. So victory for me will be when my phone stops ringing and when I stop getting all these inquiries for workshops and consultations. So. And you could just hang out on the beach. That's, we, that's that, great. That's dream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any final thoughts about this topic. So your book is uh, available for pre-order. Um, we're going to link to it on the website and Great. everything else, but any final thoughts? And then we'll talk about how people can find you and everything else. Sure. Sure. No, I think, I mean, the conversation is still very nascent in a lot of areas, right? We are nowhere near full maturity on having these discussions. We still have so many people that instead of just being open and listening, feel threatened. Right. So the subtitle of my book, How Women Can Succeed in a World Built Without Them, I get a lot of responses from people, particularly men. And it's really interesting. And depending on where I am and who they are, I either engage or walk away. We need to allow people to challenge some of the things that we thought we knew. Right. And we need to allow the world to open and change. And, and that's coming. Right. And there's a certain segment of the population that will never change their minds. And then there's a certain segment of the population that's challenging everybody to change their minds. There's somewhere in the middle for everybody on that. And I love thinking about, you know, just the idea of, you know, what assumptions do I have mm -hmm. and what do I actually believe and why am I believing that or assuming that or, or anything else? And it's generally it's just because that's the way it's always been. And it doesn't have to be that way. So that's right. uh, that's great. How can people find you? Let's plug your stuff. Yeah, sure. So therisingtides.com is my website. Inthecompanyofmenbook.com is the book website. I'd encourage you to go there, order the book, sign up for notifications about book launches or whatever it is you need. If you want to book a speaker, I'm available on both of those websites. And join us on uh, bellwetherhub.com. All that information will be there as well. So we'll link to all of that. Eileen, this has been uh, fantastic. Thank this you, This is Jim. interesting stuff. It's, uh, as a guy, it's a little, I feel like it's a little more work, but, you know, it hasn't been that much work for me in the past, I guess. And that's, <laughs> I'm learning. That's good. I'm learning. Learning that's mindset. Good. And that's, uh, and that's good. So, uh much success, I hope, with the book. Congratulations thank you. on that. That's a big, uh, that's a big accomplishment. And thank you so much for being here. And we'll have—I um, haven't talked to you about this, but we'll have—I'll 
buy a bunch of books and hand them out on the website and everything else. And we'll get a, uh, as many people as possible to, to learn. So thank you. Thanks Jim. Thank you so much for listening. Now do something for yourself. Bellwether is much more than just a podcast. Join us at bellwetherhub.com, where you can read riveting articles, view upcoming events, and connect with other interesting people. I look forward to seeing you out there soon. <laughs>